From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. Dear listeners of Inside UN Bonn, we recorded this episode with the conservationist Sasha Dench during her Round Britain Challenge in early September. Sadly, Sasha and her cameraman, Dan Burton, had a paramotoring accident later that month in which Sasha was severely injured and Dan tragically passed away. Our thoughts go out to his family and friends. Dan Burton was a well-known filmmaker who had worked with the BBC, National Geographic and many others. He was a true adventurer who was passionate about flying and diving as well as photography. The Round Britain Challenge has been put on hold but Sasha will continue to raise awareness of the plight of migratory birds. We hope that you find this interview about the threats they face as interesting as we did. Of the world's more than 1,750,000 described animal species, at least 8 to 10,000 migrate. Every minute, every second, millions of animals are fighting their way through dangerous territories through skies and seas. Many migrating species cross national borders, artificial constructs, meaningless to the animals, but with dramatic influence in their survival chance. The UN's Convention on the Conservation of Migratory Species of Wild Animals, or simply CMS, is headquartered here in Bonn. Also known as the Bonn Convention, it provides a global platform for the conservation and sustainable use of migratory animals and their habitats. The Bonn Convention brings together the states through which migratory animals pass, the range states, and lays the legal foundation for internationally coordinated conservation measures. Every year, the Bonn Convention celebrates World Migratory Bird Day, an annual awareness-raising campaign highlighting the need for the conservation of migratory birds and their habitats. On the occasion of this year's World Migratory Bird Day, we decided to talk to Sascha Dench, who is the ambassador for the Bonn Convention. Sascha is currently doing the Round Britain Climate Challenge to mark the COP26 taking place in Glasgow this fall. It is a 5,000-kilometer journey around Britain in a paramotor, basically hanging from a big parachute with a fan on her back. Sascha, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. We're so excited you can join us during your expedition. Can you tell us a bit more about this extraordinary trip? It's an attempt to fly around mainland Britain in an electric-powered paramotor. Usually I fly a petrol-powered paramotor, so that's a paraglider um, with a propeller on your back. And whilst the paraglider uses winds and thermals um, to fly, you can do long distances if you have a propeller on your back. So usually my expeditions with migratory birds, which I'll speak about a bit later, are powered by a petrol uh, motor. And I have a ground crew of diesel or petrol-powered petrol uh, vehicles or people in diesel or, or petrol-powered vehicles. And so yeah, on this occasion, marking COP26, I wanted to do something different. And the best thing I thought I could do was to put a bit of skin in the game and show that I was prepared to try to decarbonize my expedition model. And the way to do that was to try and find an electric-powered paramotor. So I did manage to find one. It is at a prototype stage, as they certainly for long distances. Nobody has used an electric motor for a long distance. So I was going to try this in the biggest distance, the most ambitious distance I could think of in a time of COVID and uh, where we are at the moment was to do a, a tour of the UK. But 
because the motor is new in development, it's actually only capable of short flights with a battery that I can physically carry to run and take off. So each battery weighs about 18 kilos. But with my ordinary petrol motor with about 16 litres of fuel and maybe a, a power motor that weighs about 30 kilos, I can fly for f over four hours with the battery of 18 kilos plus the motor and everything else. So I'd be flying with about 38 and a bit more kilos taking off and landing with that amount of weight on my back. I can only fly about 35 minutes at the moment. So whilst that was a bit of a challenge, I could use the fact that I had to land and take off regularly as an opportunity to stop and talk to people. And whilst I could have lots of short conversations with people about climate change, I was also going to plan to speak to different people around the country who've got solutions to climate change and try and share their stories through whatever means I could. So I have a ground crew of people who are trying to share that um, through the media. And so that was the idea of it. But why, as an uh, ambassador for migratory species, for the Convention on Migratory Species, why am I focusing on um, a project which is specifically on climate change? Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One of them is that on my last expedition, it became really obvious that for the birds I was following, climate change was basically making all of the existing threats to the birds worse. And because I travelled through regions of the Arctic, I spoke to a lot of people for whom climate change is a stark reality and they're noticing it much more and they're noticing the change much faster than many of us around the world. And so that became a really stark reality for me. And then I had the really unpleasant experience in January last year of losing our family home in the Australian bushfires. So along with my mum and a couple of siblings, we pumped 120,000 litres of water into tanks to defend the house, as we have done before. My mum's in the local fire brigade. It became obvious that this was on a fire on a scale that we'd never seen before, and it was impossible to fight it with a couple of hose pipes. And so we had to, we had to leave it. And so that moved climate change for me from a place of knowledge, something that I was scientifically very aware of and had seen um, species decline because of it. It was still quite a different thing. It was still quite an intellectual uh, thing. It's very different once you've had your own house uh, burned down, the place where your, your mother lives, and had all your neighbours lose their house as well. It puts it in a very different position. So now I wake up in the morning and one of my first thoughts is usually something to do with climate change and what we're going to do about it. And so, yeah, this expedition was one which was partly for me about... Uh, it came on the back of thinking with climate change being too big for most people to be able to contemplate how do we keep the how do we keep people away from feeling overwhelmed potentially scared of what is coming and therefore not bothering to tackle it at all and shift them instead away to a position of optimism of hope of solutions um and so the whole expedition model is based around that, to fly around the country, try and test the latest in electric technology for the paramotor that I use, but also share the stories of lots of really inspiring people around the country. And they're people from all walks of life. Some of them are in communities. Some people are looking at just what they do in their home. Others are trying to shift whole industries and collaborate with other heads of industry that would usually compete. So I've been speaking to people for, from all different walks of life and all different industries hoping that people can see that overall when you piece together all the actions that all those people can do and are already doing, that we really can make a big shift 
and that there's enough different people and enough different industries all working together um, to be able to drive that shift fast enough. Wow, your exhibition sounds like a real adventure and true climate action. What have been challenges during this journey? There have been all sorts of challenges with this journey. In the first couple of weeks, they were very much around the electric power motor in challenging conditions. I started off near Glasgow, and whilst I thought the terrain around the coast was going to be quite flat, it is still Scotland, and there were some headlands and mountain areas which I had to cover. And when you have a battery time of about 35 minutes and a prototype machine, there were all different sorts of things which were difficult. When you have to climb to altitude, Uh, over a long period of time, the, because the batteries are packed quite close together so that they can fit around your back, they also get hot quite quickly. So I was only getting about 15 seconds of full power on takeoff, for example, before the battery needed 10 seconds to cool down. And when you're in a mountain conditions with high trees and things around, that can be really difficult. You don't necessarily notice that in a trial situation when you're in around flat fields. Um, there was also issues for fly-through commercial Uh, airspace so around airports and things the usual protocol would be to take off to radio and say I'm interested in crossing your airspace and the air traffic controller will give you a time slot where you can do that well in a paramotor not only am I slow but if I've got a really short battery time if they want me to keep a holding position for 20 minutes and then they give me five minutes to cross I then would only have a really short time before I have to land again so that was also a challenge that I had to get around so there have been many Obviously, every 35 minutes, I need to find a safe place to take off and land. And um, the whole intention was to have unexpected conversations with people. And a lot of those I really wanted with farmers because farmers manage a lot of our land and are therefore a really important part of our solution to climate change. I wanted to have random conversations with them. And because I don't know ever how far I'm going to get on each battery, because how far you can go depends on the wind speed and wind direction and the overall conditions of the day. Most of the time, 99% of the time, those landings and interactions with people were fantastic. People were interested in talking and telling their story. There have been a couple of occasions where people weren't um, happy to have somebody landing. Uh, so yeah, we've had a mostly really positive interactions with people. And yeah, some of the stories people I've spoken to have been um, a little bit challenging to my views, but m most of them Overall, the picture I've had has been really inspiring. This is actually not your first time traveling in a paramotor. In fact, in 2016, you flew 7,000 kilometers across 11 countries in a paramotor for the purpose of tracking the migrating Buick Swan from the Russian Arctic to the UK. You even set a Guinness World Record as the first woman to cross the English Channel by paramotor. This journey made you earn the nickname the Human Swan. How did your fascination for migratory birds start? My passion for migratory birds actually began through meeting people. Probably the big moment for me was sitting in a room full of experts on different areas of the, the life and the migration of the Buick Swan and hearing them talk about the massive decline in the bird over the previous 20, 25 years all the different threats the birds face in different countries, all the challenges they had in trying to turn those, um, those facts um, and the research into action because every country could say, well, there's no point us doing our bit tackling this particular threat in this particular country unless everybody else does their bit and we don't think they all will. And so I 
listened to all of this and the variety of different threats they face is quite enormous and difficult to get your head around. It's everything from the loss of wetlands due to development and agriculture to collisions with power lines, which is connected to the renewable energy industry as well, um, to eating lead shot, to being shot at, which are both issues to do with, um, with hunting. There's lots of different industries, lots of different people, languages, cultures, and I could really see how difficult this was to, to tease apart the different threats, but then how much harder it was to, um, to drive conservation action and change for these birds. And so it was listening to all these really passionate, really smart people who'd found a problem. And then it was the realisation that any threats that were affecting the Buick Swan, which is a big, white, visible, very well-loved bird, was potentially also happening to many other species which are less well-noticed, less publicly loved, I suppose. And so if we could do anything to help the Buick Swan, however hard it might be, you could have a positive impact on so many other species. The third piece, I suppose, in the puzzle was having an idea that I thought was pretty outlandish, but I really thought could work. And so for me, it was that I saw just how incredible these birds were. I met some really inspiring scientists who had some great ideas and then realised that there was a role in this story that I thought I could play a way that I really thought I could help that would make a difference. So it was all those things together. However, the moment that I first really fell in love with migratory birds, um, it became like an emotional connection, something that I knew I'd want to be working on for some time, when my past had pretty much all been working on marine species, was a moment at a wetland up in Scotland at Calaverock where I was walking out onto the marshes. I was bringing a journalist out with me to cover a story. And the warden, it was in my, my first few weeks uh, working for the Wildfowl and Wetland Trust, and suddenly the warden yelled, get down, and we ducked down behind a bush, and I had 25,000 barnacle geese fly over my head. And the sound and the sight and the whole experience was so inspiring that it left a mark on my memory and it's a, a moment that I go back to regularly. So that was really it and that's another reason why I really, really, really want to get other people out experiencing that. That sounds like a real special moment. On their journeys, migratory birds face many threats. What kind of threats did you encounter during your flight and how have they changed throughout the past years? One of the great things about flying the paramotor is that you are exposed to the weather conditions and I could fly at a similar speed and altitude to the birds. So also uh, shared myself in flight many of the same threats to birds. And these include the turbulent and unpredictable weather, the potential for collisions with power lines, the constant need to be on the lookout for safe places to so stop and rest and refuel. And whilst for me that wasn't um, necessarily the wetland sites, but that's what it was for the birds. So that was really an important part of getting inside the head of the birds was to experience the flight in as close to a way that they do as possible. And the kind of threats 
that I have mentioned already, obviously, are collisions with power lines, the loss of their wetland habitats, illegal shooting. I didn't obviously experience any of that, but one in three of living living Buick swans has got shot in their body. So many of them are being shot and potentially killed if that's how many are living with um, with shot in their bodies. But we also came across examples of poisoning from eating lead shot. Hunters had no idea that that was even an issue. So, yes, there was a whole variety of, of different threats to, to the birds. And the loss of wetlands can happen from anything due to agriculture, due to reclaiming the land for agricultural development, um, but also conversion of wetlands into fish farms. So all different kinds. And then there's also a disturbance of the birds. And now many people doing leisure activities had no idea, for example, that kite surfing at a site which was really critical for the birds on migration, potentially the last stop before they they get to the Arctic or before they have to breed, that serious disturbance to the birds there when they've already been on a long journey and they really badly need to sleep and refuel, that disturbance to the birds at that time could actually um, have a, be, be a really serious risk to, to their lives. And how have they changed? There have been some really uh, interesting changes just since I went on my expedition. One of the really exciting ones is that after now decades of campaigning from many organisations right across Europe, finally, lead shot is going to be banned from use in all wetlands in all EU member states, which is really exciting. That is a huge decision. And one of the most exciting things for me about that is that in order to get that passed, behind the scenes, what happened was also a real strong shift in the views and beliefs of hunters on whether this was a problem. And the fact that as a as a group of conservation organisations and scientists, we've managed to bring a load of the hunting community along with us in order to be able to change that decision um, is really exciting. And it mostly because it inspires me to think that actually we could do it also in a lot of other areas. So that's been great. Obviously, the impacts of climate change are not reducing. They are still going to be getting worse and the conditions for the birds when they stop at each of their resting sites is going to be getting less predictable as will the weather conditions. So that is is not an exciting development at all. When you look then at power lines, in some parts... People have paid attention to the collisions with power lines. There's a couple of stretches of power lines in particular where we raised the issue along with locals, um, one of those in, in Estonia, another in Lithuania. And since the expedition, those stretches of power lines, which were killing a lot of birds every year, have either got big diverters on them or have been partly dismantled, partly covered in diverters with promises to have them all underground within the next few years. So those are some really exciting developments which also tell me that when we find the right ways to collaborate with industry, get public support behind what we need to do, then we really can shift and create change because people do want to be on the positive side. They want to be on the right side of history. Yeah, that's true. You're the ambassador of the UN's Convention on the Conservation of Migratory Species of Wild Animals. The Bond-based treaty has listed a wide range of migratory animals threatened with extinction. Amongst many other animals, the list includes whales, elephants, giraffes, turtles, insects, and of course birds. Can you explain to us why the conservation of migratory species is so important and what makes it tricky? I guess... 
the the conservation of migratory species, uh, the conservation of any species is really important. The real challenge with migratory species and also the exciting thing for me is that in order to do so, you have to bring together so many different people from so many different countries, so many different cultures. And in doing so, what I've found is that it forces us to look at the big picture, to look outside of our own countries, our own situation, but also to tackle some of the, the really big issues. And that's what I can't find great about them. The other thing that inspires me in particular is that the journeys of migratory species are so exciting, are so varied, are so mind-blowing that those stories can excite and inspire and bring people together and in dealing with the issues at that sort of level multi-country getting lots of people from different ideas and different backgrounds together you can come up with some pretty inspiring solutions that will help not only other migratory species because many birds for example use similar flyways but when you're tackling those you're also helping local issues so I love that they bring people together the thing that's really challenging also is the same thing really that the birds can suffer very different threats in different countries and you have to deal with different language, different culture, different political backgrounds in order to bring people together. For many species, they're not on a country's priority list unless they're either the, the wintering country or the, the breeding country, so either end of the migratory flyway. Many birds are not on a priority list, for example, in the countries that are just along the flyway. So that can be a, a challenge. So these incredible journeys the birds do and other migratory species do not only provide the real challenge but also provide a real opportunity, particularly in a time of climate change, to bring people together and to focus attention through the eyes of migratory birds, through their journeys on what we should all be trying to do to save them. Speaking of raising awareness for migratory birds, we are today celebrating World Migratory Bird Day. How will you celebrate World Migratory Bird Day and how can others participate and take action? The theme for World Migratory Bird Day is Sing, Fly, Soar Like a Bird. I am likely to spend this World Migratory Bird Day in another country, potentially flying, but in a time of COVID, there's a lot of uncertainties around that still. But one thing I generally do on World Migratory Bird Day is I pull out the playlist, the list of songs that I had playing through my headset in flight on my journey from Russia to the UK with, with the Buick Swan. Um, and that's a playlist of songs that I, I asked for the public to recommend. So they were all songs that I didn't know before the expedition. And I had them so that I could specifically imprint the sights and the sounds and the smells of that journey with those particular songs. Where every time I listen to them, and I only listen to them on special occasions, it takes me directly back there to that experience. And how can others participate and take action? Well, I guess there's a few things. If you are new to migratory birds, then explore them in whatever way inspires you. If you're interested in music, if you're interested in the sounds, if you even don't know what migratory birds come to near you, then get online and Google it. If there are migratory birds around you, go out and try and see them. It might not be easy, but that's part of the that's part of the fun. You might live in a part of the world where you can see vast flocks of birds flying overhead. And then the next step is to figure out whether you're interested enough to take action and do something about it. The first thing would be that if you are completely new to it 
and you have you would have no idea where to start find out what organizations or individuals near you might be working on them and then look at what skills and resources you might have as an individual and see if you can offer to help that's really what we need for the conservation of migratory species is people from all different walks of life with all different ranges of skills to step up and try and help migratory birds are some of the most threatened on the planet and they really could do with your help. So if you think you've got the passion and the skills and the interest, then please do find out how you can volunteer. Well, I would say there is no one more perfect than you to be the ambassador for the Bonn Convention. When you're not flying with birds, you're a conservationist and motivational speaker. We already learned that climate change is an important topic to you, not only intellectually, but also emotionally. You mentioned that your mother lost her home to bushfires in Australia last year. How has this devastating experience affected you? And how did you manage to stay motivated and not give up? After the bushfires went through and took our home, it took me a while to figure out how I was going to respond to that. It would have been very easy to feel a sensation of, of devastation, of overwhelm, because we lost so much. My mum in particular lost so much in that fire and nature is still taking a long time to recover. It'd be very, very easy to see climate change as a kind of climageddon and something that's too big, too powerful for us to approach. But I was finding that I didn't really, really believe that. And one of, those re one of the reasons is that on the expedition with the swans, what I saw firsthand was that whilst there were so many threats to the birds in so many different countries, it seemed almost impossible to really make a difference. Having spoken to and visited so many people in so many different countries and seeing lots of them put up their hand and offer to help, and then seeing many of those offers to help turn into positive change, I saw that you really can if you motivate enough people to help. People do want to help. They do want to collaborate. But what I also learned was that the key thing to getting people to put up their hand and offer to do their little bit was to tell stories about lots of other people who were doing their bit. And so they could see the, how their piece of the puzzle could add up with all the others to making a significant change. And we really did create significant change for the Buick Swans. And I really think that we can make a rapid shift on climate change and a shift to net zero. But I think the only way we do that is to for everybody to see that lots of other people are doing their bit. And if we can do that, if we can change the narrative from one of climageddon and overwhelm to one of hope and optimism, where people can see lots of exciting ideas, lots of things they can back and where their role could fit in a new world, a new, a new greener economy that is net zero, then I think we have a chance of creating rapid change. So I just decided that I would devote myself and my energies to that. The COP26 is only a couple of weeks away now. What are your hopes for this year's COP in Glasgow? My hopes for COP are that every representative of every country that attends, that are really in the decision-making positions, go there with an aim to be ambitious, to be optimistic, to aim high and to collaborate. All of those things are what we need from people. This is not about making sure anyone can get away with the minimum. I feel like there's the mandate from the people and even from industry for leaders of countries to really 
step up on this occasion. Climate change is the biggest issue affecting us all. It might not seem like the most immediate for a lot of people if you're looking at health, if you're looking at well-being, if you're looking at jobs. But in fact, climate change is an issue that is above everything and will impact on everything. So it's all our priority. I also hope that companies that are disappointed at not being given a place at a table or uh, the an opportunity to be at a certain event or are struggling to see how they can play a role specifically in Glasgow at the event, I hope that for those people that they actually look at COP26 not as being something you have to be at or be seen to be at, that it's a moment in time that should be a motivating moment for us all. And the really important thing is to be looking at what we're doing in our personal lives as individuals within companies and make this moment matter by our actions, not by specifically being in Glasgow. Will you be attending the COP? And if so, what will you be doing there? Yes, I will be attending COP. I'll have various different platforms to speak at, to attend, to exhibit, also to show films and photographs. I'll also be at associated COP events, including the National Farmers Union's version of COP, which is intended to bring in those in agriculture. What I really think that I can bring is a human story. I speak from the heart and from my experiences of conversations with people, seeing the world through the eyes of animals. I hope to bring their stories and voices to those various platforms. Um, and what I really hope to do is to remind all the decision makers there, whether they be heads of industry or government, that the decisions they make are affecting the lives of real people all around the world and the wildlife that we care about so much. But I also want to show them that there is mass public and private support for taking big and ambitious actions that match the targets that have been set in the past so that they make sure that this is a COP that's all about driving action. We've had a COP which is about targets and promises and collaboration. This one needs to be about action. You're right, action at the COP26 is definitely needed. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside You and Bonn. It was a pleasure to hear about your extraordinary expeditions to raise awareness of the plight of migratory birds. If you would like to find out more about World Migratory Bird Day, you can go to www.worldmigratorybirdday.org or follow at WMBD on Twitter. The UN Convention on the Conservation of Migratory Species of Wild Animals is also on Twitter. Just look for at Bonn Convention. Thank you for listening to Inside UN Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monja Sauvager. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind Jön Bonn. To find out more about Jön Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind Jön Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, We are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.